welcome to the Mnemonic Strength Practitioners panel, uh, where we focus on the idea of human performance optimization, which we define as the process of applying knowledge, skills, and technologies to improve and, uh, and preserve the capabilities of humans to execute essential tasks. This is always quite a mouthful when, yeah. I, when I say this. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so uh, generally, you know, as uh, as listeners, we um, we welcome you to join us on this uh, exploration of how do we optimize the human body, not just for health, fitness uh, related uh, things, but also um, you know really anything um, in, in, that you're working on, whether it be relationships or work or or whatnot. It just kind of happens to be that today we are going to focus on uh, health and particular uh, anti-aging and regenerative medicine. Okay, and so today's guest is with uh, Dr. Lorena Law. She is board certified by the American Association of Anti-Aging and Regenerative Medicine and is an advanced fellowship in anti-aging metabolic and functional medicine. Also, also a, a mouthful. Yeah. Do you say, would you say that every time you're like, I do all this stuff? No. <laughs> no. Okay. Um, but I also find too, you know, a, a yeah. particularly interesting is the addition to your clinical practice is uh, working as an educator, right, and presenter on, on, on a lot of public topics. And some we'll discuss today with regards to hormonal health, fat loss, nutritional supplementation, uh, detoxification, stress management, ingredient approach to aging skin, and intravenous use of high. Oh, I like this idea, the, the idea of using intravenous uh, yeah. fluids. Uh, and then also she authored the section on intravenous therapy in the book Strength and Conditioning for Combat Sports, which I think is also quite um, relative to what we do at Nirvana Strength with regards to performance training and, and how it would benefit there. So uh, today we're, we're going to focus on um, yeah, anti-aging and regenerative medicine and really, I guess, anything that kind of falls underneath that, which really is kind of everything. I think, right? For the most yeah. part, I mean. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It's a bit. It's actually everything, and it's quite overwhelming, um, in many ways. But um, the reason why it interests me and why I kind of find myself going in full circles um, in all aspects of health and wellness is because I started out in general practice. Hmm. So um, in Australia, we call general practitioners a jack of all trade. So right. you pretty much have to know all different diseases, conditions, and presentations because um, you're a gatekeeper for mm. a lot of these issues. So that means you kind of have to treat the basics um, first, and if people don't stabilize or they don't get better, then you've got to work out when you have to re refer to a specialist. Right. So we were just talking before about the idea of anti-aging, and um, if someone were to ask you what is what is the study of anti-aging? Is it just uh, trying to find essentially like the holy grail of of holy grails, right? To yeah. stay young. Yeah, it's it's actually not an it's actually not a new concept, um, and I have to sort of go back to my roots in sort of into China because the Chinese people have had three thousand years of medical research and um, documentation about how to live well and how to have good quality of life, how mm. to sustain um, vitality. And so I think this um, anti-aging term sort of in a Western culture is kind of a little bit newer because some of the technologies and advances in medical science has kind of brought to attention that it is possible 
to not just prolong life but also to improve quality of life. So I guess anti-aging to me, um, I kind of use anti-aging, proactive aging, yeah. <laughs> optimal wellness kind of all in the same basket because there's so many overlapping um, principles. So that's, that's why I kind of say, well, anti-aging, everyone resonates with it. And also because um, part of my practice also involves aesthetics, which means using um, cosmetic injections, such as collagen, such as injectable nutrients, um, to sort of preserve the external mm -hmm. appearance. So it kind of has different um, definitions depending on which circle of people that you actually talk to. Um, but for me, it's not just external, it's internal as well. And um, sort of the inter internal part is really part of my lifelong passion. So I kind of incorporate everything under <laughs> that blanket. Yeah. So how did your, I mean, how would you differentiate like what you focus on now with um, maybe what other people in the anti-aging community do? Like, is there any, any, any parts of what, what's happening in the anti-aging like community that you wouldn't necessarily like follow or you feel like maybe you're doing different than what other people are focused on? I think a lot of people, um, I mean, it's a, it's a very broad area as well. Mm. So, so there are a lot of doctors who are focused on um, stem cells and regeneration, hormonal therapies, um, peptides, um, and also um, sort of very innovative types of treatments, um, but also goes into lifestyle medicine mm -hmm. because really when you look at um, all these advanced treatments, you still need to or you would want to have a very good foundation um, of, of diet, nutrition, movement, because what I've observed in my practice is people who have that good foundation if they do go into or choose to have these more advanced therapies, they tend to respond better, they don't tend to need it for as, as, as long a period of time, um, and they also experience less side effects. Yeah. So, the, I mean, it's a really, really, really broad um, study. And is do you, do you find that most people in anti-aging, do they typically focus on, like let's say they just focus on just one part of the, the whole picture or, because it sounds like you have a, a broad like combination of all these different uh, areas, and you try to incorporate everything into uh, into your practice. Do you, is it hard to figure out the puzzle? Because it's, I mean, it's, there's got to be so many pieces, and then each individual is like so, like different, yeah. and uh, yeah, it's got to be kind of be. I mean, interesting because it is like a continued like puzzle, right? And it's like a new puzzle for every single person that comes in. Mm -hmm. But uh, is it at times frustrating the process, or it's um, it's it's a it's challenging because it's a very different paradigm to um, where you know where I started, which is in conventional um, traditional like conventional medicine. You know, going through medical school and then you go and you you choose your hospital medicine for a while, and then you choose your own specialty and you just focus on that. Mm. So in anti aging, there's also that pathway as well. So there are certain doctors who just focus on sort of say hormone therapy or just stem cells, or um, you know perhaps even um, uh, sort of um, the, the regenerative side 
of it. But because it's so broad, um, I can't actually do everything because it's just too time consuming to learn everything. So my position usually is I find out who those people are who mm -hmm. are really, really good at what they do. They do this every day. That's their bread and butter. And then I find the right person, mm -hmm. um, the right patient, who would be suitable for that particular treatment. Mm -hmm. So I'm still kind of doing my family physician general practice role, um, but I understand more a bit about the actual therapies that are available. Yeah. And so for me, my focus is on just really doing the basic things well. So sleep, diet, mm -hmm. movement, stress management, being connected with yourself, um, and also understanding how our changing environment yeah. is affecting our bodies. I think that's a really um, very important and, and, and good point that you bring up with regards to focusing on the, the kind of the most basic components of, of health, I think. You know, like so, so many people are, are so quick to, you know, want to start taking pills and want to start taking supplements and trying to figure out a quick and easy way and then... Uh, I mean, I'm sure like one of the very, I mean, some of the basic questions you'd probably ask is just be like, are you, are you sleeping, right? Are you, mm -hmm. are you actually, <laughs> are you eating whole food or like, yeah. you know what I mean? Like just even super basic stuff. And then yeah. people um, tend to like so many of the basics are just kind of messed up in their life. And they're just like, they just want like a quick pill to kind of fix everything. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. Which I think in a sense also kind of goes away from the wow. idea of, from the, from the business side of it, right? Like it's really easy to just be like, oh yeah, take these pills, they'll make you feel better. Here's, cost you like $2,000. And then knowing that because they're, they're foundational, like parts of their life are still in a mess, they're more than likely gonna come back, maybe even worse than when you yeah. fix them in the first place. Yeah, um, totally. And this is really the paradigm of um, conventional medicine. Um, so when I first studied and went into hospital medicine and when I started seeing patients and I started seeing everybody from pediatrics to geriatrics, yeah. um, I started to realize that there was this pattern of old people coming to hospital and they were already on 10 different medications. Yeah. And then we actually send them out of the hospital with an extra five different medications. So then it kind of, the penny dropped for me, mm. um, sort of at that point where I realized that we weren't really getting people better. Mm. We're just using medication to sort of keep them in this symptom-free state, but the disease process is still ongoing. Right. So um, it's a frustration because mm. when I first started out, when I you know, it said to myself, I signed up for medicine, I wanted to learn about wellness and health and how do we maintain health? Because general practice is about preventative health and we, we talk a lot about preventative health, but unfortunately, um, you know, in the 20 years since I've graduated, it's still very difficult um, to, to put into practice for a lot of doctors. Um, because it's very easy for us to write a prescription yeah. and then the patient goes home, we spend maybe 15 minutes per consultation yeah. um, and that's to even just explain the side effects and the drugs and then right. there's no room left to actually talk about those basic foundational things mm. um, and people get um, used to the idea of just taking a pill, whether it's a drug 
um, medication or a supplement mm. even because either of those things if you're really just targeting symptoms you're just targeting symptoms you're not really looking at how the person got there is it is it difficult because it almost seems like you know if if a doctor I mean, it seems like there there is some kind of like moral and ethical issues with how the system is, right? Like, if you're actually in like wanting to help people get better from a health perspective and longevity perspective, like you probably should spend a little bit more time with them than the than the fifteen minutes. Is there? Do you find that it's an issue, like a systematic issue, like just with the actual like big hospitals? Because a lot of them are like basically like businesses i mean the states right like to get an mri is is like ten thousand plus dollars whereas um in, in some in some countries i know like i got an mri in south korea and it only cost me a hundred dollars um as part of their um medical uh, their like national pension or national insurance mm-hmm. um so I, I felt like there was definitely i mean I, I guess america is kind of the extreme example with regards to costs um but uh, how, how did you, how did yourself, like, how did you get away from what you felt like was like the problem with your, with your general practice? I think um, understanding that actually we're working in a system that um, is only catering for short consultations. And um, it kind of has a history of coming from um, medicine that was practiced in the wars. A lot of it is mm. acute medicine. You know, a lot of the things that we've learnt um, in terms of disease and infections um, actually came from when we learnt about it in people who had infected wounds. So a lot of the system that we still have today is kind of based around that. It's very much acute care. So, um, and I actually have to say that we have developed a lot of amazing, great technologies to deal with that, to deal with emergencies, to Mm. deal with... Um, acute infections um, and I think that's a great tool that we have but now we're not at that kind of war space we're in a situation where we have plenty of food we live inside buildings Mm. Um, we often sit at a desk for work we're we're tending to use our brains more than our bodies so we come and we are we've evolved um, into a different kind of um, life Mm. so then diseases the patterns of diseases become much more chronic and they're much more long-term so but the institutions and the insurances it hasn't evolved to cater for that Mm. so we're we're still in a situation where um, these structures are in place and they're just rewarding fast acute medicine right and we know that it doesn't work um, because there are still many, many more people getting chronic illnesses. Yeah. So. Yeah, it's it's amazing, like how, like how health conscious people are in America, but how we just continue to get in worse and worse condition. Like our health is just getting way worse. We're still continuing. Our obesity rates are just kind of going through the roof. Uh, you know and. It seems like, I mean, there's definitely a lot of health stuff that's definitely driven by um, by mass media, by, um, yeah, just private entities. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I mean, what are, so you, so you say when you, like, you're, you're going into, like, looking into the research, 
not necessarily like all the research, but you're looking into like which individuals you would do you would trust, like when when like you have like normal people who kind of want to go through the same process, right? Like how do they, how do you go through your process of figuring out who is someone that would actually be someone that you would listen to, and you trust to actually do the research? Yeah. So um, it does take a bit of time, but um, I guess because I come from a background in medicine, in science, and also in sort of critical thinking and looking at research and looking at what people are saying, um, I often will look at what training they've done mm. on top of just their regular medical training. And then I will look at sort of information that they've written. Um, and then if I get an opportunity, I will often call them yeah. or meet them in person mm. um, if they're in Hong Kong and sort of ask them about how they practice what's their philosophy, um, what kind of patients um, they generally see, and um, explain a little bit about the type of patients that I see, um, and sort of have a face-to-face -face communication, um, yeah. and just, I guess, suss them out, really. Yeah. I think, yeah, I mean, the idea of, like, even as simple as asking someone, like, what is their what is their philosophy, and how do they decide on the type of treatments for, for their uh, clients. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think it's quite easy to just be like, oh, your your thyroid is, is, is swollen or whatever. Here's a pill to fix that. I mean, from a critical thinking perspective, it's like, okay, well, that's the symptom of like what's wrong, but what's what's actually wrong? Yeah. And I think, um, yeah, even, even that, it's like, yeah. don't be confused with uh, getting a quick fix, right? So like they see a problem, they say, okay, you do this to fix this problem, but knowing that the problem is, that is visible is not, yeah. it's just a symptom of the actual underlying issues. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Because, and I often use this analogy um, about the iceberg, because the symptom is actually just the tip of the iceberg. Mm. But um, what you don't see underneath the iceberg are all the underlying conditions and issues that people have. So whether it's toxins, whether it's detox issues, whether it's past trauma, whether there's emotional problems, whether they're just eating the wrong diet, not moving enough, like all those issues are very foundational. And going back to sort of when you asked me how did I get out of that paradigm um, of just um, working with fast insurance or symptom medicine insurance based practice, it took a while yeah. um, for me to set it up. So I started with friends, family, just to see how they would respond to my way of questioning them and asking them. And then as people started to get better, um, it kind of made me sort of become a bit more courageous mm -hmm. um, in implementing this in my day-to-day. -day. So I would add extra um, questions to when patients came to see me about symptoms. Um, and I did this for a while, but it wasn't until someone very close to me got really ill, was mm -hmm. diagnosed with an autoimmune condition, that I realized I have to be quite serious about this because this could happen to anybody in my own family. It could happen to me, it could happen to people I love, and so I want to know a bit more about this and I want to be formally trained. Mm. Um, and that's the reason why I became board certified um, because I needed to understand a broader spectrum of how things are connected. Um, and over time, um, you know, I would go and speak to different people who are very proactive about aging. So mm -hmm. people who are in fitness clubs, um, studio, PT studios, um, people who were connected to really empowering 
um, the individual, yeah. um, I would just go and just talk about what I do and how I practice. And so just through word of mouth, really. Is it is it hard to, I w- you know, I would guess that most of the, the clients and the people that you see, they have some idea or at least they're experiencing some negative uh, effects of whatever their underlying issues might be. Is there, how do we, I mean, how would you change people's thinking, right, to go away from just dealing with the the problems when they arise, right? So how do we get away from um, health with regards to just the, being healthy is right, essentially the absence of, of problems or disease, which is what, what most people think, mm. right? How do we get people to, to take more of an active role in the, the preventative, the care and the actual... Um, yeah, you're just dealing with issues before they become issues. Yeah, right? it's, it's I mean, challenging. It's, a, yeah. it's very challenging because, you know, it's human nature to not deal with anything until you feel pain or you feel any discomfort or you start having symptoms. Yeah. It's, it's human nature. But even some people, will they'll, it's, they will, they will uh, be okay with a certain amount of pain, right? Like, they will, like my dad was, um, you know, at some point he kind of just woke up one day and his, his back kind of hurt a little bit. And then after, you know, a week of every morning or two weeks or whatever, his back hurting a little bit, like just now it's like it's normal. And it's just like, ah, whatever, my back hurts a little bit. And then just not dealing with it, you know. Or uh, I've had uh, I had one client who, who, who thought she was eating extremely healthy because she was eating a lot of whole food, she was eating a lot of grains and, and all that stuff. And then come to find out that she's like allergic to half of the foods that she's eating because... She, she just can't eat oats or can't eat whatever. So she spent like, you know, 10 plus years thinking that she was just overweight when she was just really just swollen and just yeah. just inflamed, yeah. Yeah. Um, which is, is kind of um, funny. Yeah, yeah. it's it, it, there's a few different um, scenarios there. I think one thing I've realized is that we accept um, degeneration, dysfunction, um, um, sort of pain because we think we're aging. Mm. I think that's part of what we've been told is, oh, it's just age, you know, or memory, you lose your memory yeah. or you forget things, oh, I'm just getting older, just getting, yeah. you know? Yeah. <laughs> that, yeah. that sort of cliche saying, and we just kind yeah. of accept it and think, oh yeah, you know, it's just, it's, that's just the way it is. But is it that or is it because we've, we, there's no pill for it? Right. So I'll, I'm always, you know, philosophizing about that and thinking about that. But I mean, that has to start with, I think education really from our our children and our kids. Yeah. You know, we're not teaching kids about what is optimal health. Mm. You know, optimal health isn't just about being disease free. Yeah. Because the WHO, World World Health Organization, they have a definition of what is optimal health and wellness, and it is physical and emotional well-being that is beyond disease free. Mm. It's actually much more about vitality. Mm. It's much more about quality of life. So if we don't know what that is for each of us, and we don't know what that is since we're young, how are we going to know what that is when we're older? Because the only person that I, and I always say this to empower my patients, the best person to know what's wrong with you is yourself. Because you you live with you have to live with yourself every day. Yeah. So it's uh yeah that's a tough one you know I think we do find that 
um, particularly like here at the at, at the gym, you know, like when we're trying to figure out where where are you having some weaknesses or physical issues with your body, we tend to find that a lot of people, I mean, just naturally through their their daily lives, actually consciously or not, or mostly unconsciously, they actually avoid uh, all the the issues or all the ranges of movement that they have uh, because it's it's a difficult position or because it's painful or because um, they've had some past traumatic uh, issues that now it's like kind of ingrained in their brain to kind of stay away from this position I think there is um, yeah there's definitely a component of life that and I, and I think a lot of our I mean our bodies are kind of built this way this idea of just survival right mm-hmm. and we we used to be always constantly in nature and forced to uh, adapt to just some obstacle that would arise in life so like if it just started getting cold it's like okay we got to start doing something to to warm ourselves up and but now it's like we're so comfortable in life right uh, i mean in indonesia right so easy just to be like go go jack everything go jack massage yeah. go jack so everybody go jack is just a delivery service and they you can get anything delivered uh, food massages you can get house cleaners you can get whatever and um the we don't actually like actively even put ourselves into challenging situations to to actually deal with um yeah uh, issues it's true and i think also because we are so afraid of that um and we don't realize that actually our body has is is an amazing machine um that has the capacity to adapt to that stress that we put it through every day. Um, it's just that it's not apparent right now because we're not living in nature. We're not sort of you know running away from a saber-toothed tiger. We're trying to climb a tree, or you know, <laughs> yeah. so we don't have that ability to test it every day. So it's not immediately tangible to us. And all these things that go on in terms of what's not visible, which is kind of a lot of what I deal with. Um, looking at people's blood levels, hormone levels, you know, those things are not, um, you know, um, readily accessible for a lot of people. Um, they don't realize that the imbalance is happening there. Mm. And just because they don't have a symptom doesn't necessarily mean that they're well. Um, if you look at a lot of um, athletes, they might look great, you know, six pack, everything out on the outside. But, um, they're not menstruating, yeah. their testosterone is low, they're not sleeping well, they're very inflamed, they have high oxidative stress, um, and it doesn't present itself straight away because yeah. that's that's our body adapting. Yeah, so I we think, have great capacity. Yeah, great, great capacity to adapt to our environment, but also, I mean, that could, if our environment is not, um, not ideal, then it's going to adapt in a kind of a bad way. Uh, with regards to like athletes, you know, I find that even like there's a big difference between the aesthetic appearance that what people are actually like wanting to get, right? So your beach body and, and such, uh, and the actual the physical performance aspect of, of life, right? So are you are you wanting to be you know fifty six years old and and maybe you're bedridden because you herniated a, a disc in your back and you can talk about that one time you had a six pack? Or do you actually want to be, you know, um, you know, hundred plus years old and and, and being actually active? Um, I think the the long game is something that is very difficult for people to think about. I think even um, I can't remember who who said it, but 
the even the idea of living until you're 100 years old there's there's actually quite a few people that would not want to live that old because their their perception of someone who's that old is someone who is around in a wheelchair and hooked up to an IV or uh, oxygen tank yeah. and they're just like decrepit and, and about and to die and, and so dependent right yeah. like of course if you're like that I could yeah. see why you wouldn't want to be yeah. at that age but yeah. yeah so this is really what I call it proactive aging is really about Ooh, I like that proactive yeah, aging. I, yeah I like that word better than anti-aging but you know people always <laughs> resonate that more yeah. anti-aging okay. but proactive aging like we're in a day where we're not just talking about lifespan we're talking about health span mm. So if that's, you know, I was, I, I looked at that picture when I was in hospital medicine and I thought to myself, geez, I just want to live until 60 because <laughs> I don't want to live 20 extra years depending on somebody yeah. you know, <laughs> giving me a bedpan. <laughs> that was not ideal. Um, but if we actually look at a lot of ancient traditional cultures, you know, they're living productive, purposeful lives, yeah. you know, you know, Jap the Japanese in Okinawa, hmm. they have the, the highest number of um, centurions. Yeah. And if you look at the reasons, it's all about being in nature, community, connection, purpose. I think, yeah, definitely all those things are good, good components of, of the, the overall picture. Uh, with regards to, uh, let's say, nutrition, do you find that Nutrition. I mean, nutritional science is even though it, there are there are some studies out there that have been happening for a long time that it's still a relatively new um, field that that we're still trying to discover, still trying to figure out. I think it's because um, it was it was not even that long ago where mm. uh, there was a really like almost a regulation with regards to like gut health and microbiomes <laughs> and people actually be like, oh wow, our guts are actually really important. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, so it's interesting to see that about nutrition because prior to the discovery of, wow, you know, our gut microbiome actually has an influence in, on how we metabolize our nutrients, mm -hmm. all the research was really just based on calories and, and based macros on macros and, yeah. and, and based on how that affects your hormones and training performance and all this type of stuff. And then now, um, and even after, um, and in addition to discovering a bit about the idea of um, genetics, we're discovering that actually there is an interplay between gut microbiome and our gene expression. Mm. So then that adds another layer of complexity to nutrition because it's no longer um, the calories that count. There are so many other physiological, much more powerful um, impacts that um, the food can have mm. in our bodies. It's not just calories, it's actually information. Yeah. Um, it's sending signals um, to our brains, to our microbiome, to our genes. Mm. So I think the area of this type of science and well, I call it nutrigenomics um, because it's a study between genes and nutrition and how that affects expression. Um, it's new, it's very, mm. very new. So it's very exciting, but um, there's also a lot of unknown and um, it's and it's very difficult to to do the research on it, um, but I think you know I'm hopeful that there are people out there doing the research, looking at this, and and hopefully we will really one day be able to quantify what helps people be healthy. Mm. Yeah, I think uh, I mean so if we let's go back to the the, the idea of the blue zones. Um, I, I've heard that that's even some of that was 
cherry-picked with regards to like which regions were selected as promoting like blue zone areas and that even there would be even areas like let's say uh, Okinawa was one of the areas that was highlighted but that there would be um, places relatively close to Okinawa that would have a slightly different diet but still have high levels of, of centurions is there do you find in any other any of your other research that because like I think Hong Kong is one of the has pretty high um, yeah, uh, lifespans has, yeah, very, very in the world and, th- and there's also quite high levels of meat consumption mm. in Hong Kong as well which would almost go against what most people would consider as part of a uh, yeah. a healthy lifestyle yeah and and this is this is the reason why it's so difficult um, to really pinpoint what's right for the individual mm. because all these are population studies and if you take one person you know for example we know in very old studies if we take somebody from an, an ancestral um, background that was Asian mm-hmm. and then we then put them onto a western type diet that a lot of them would get heart disease and diabetes um, at a much higher rate Mm. so then the question is is it actually just the diet or is it because they've moved the in in the air in the water you know because then with different geographical locations you've got different microbiomes yeah so you know a lot of that also impacts us so that's why it's not just looking at the macronutrients anymore it's actually looking at the whole impact Mm. Um, and so you know even though we try to control everything in science so that we can understand the pathways the reality is we don't live in these isolated pathways we actually yeah live in I think yeah it's quite the whole nutritional science thing is quite interesting Uh, one of uh, one of my members uh, Dominic Rapson he's uh, big into uh, ancestral nutrition but he was uh, one time, he said one time he was like uh, we're the only animals in the whole world that don't know what to eat like we just don't we don't even know what to consume right all these very simple animals are just you know eating what they're naturally built to eat and we're just like just still trying to figure it out and it almost seems like us being as as smart as we are is kind of worked against us uh, and the, like even going to how how bad uh, health is in America right now, um, and I guess even in um, even in South Korea, uh, from when I first started living there like 11 years ago, or now almost over 13 years ago, they had uh, a lower obesity rate than Japan, which was they had the lowest obesity rate in all of the OECD, and then by the time I left after 11 years, they had uh, increased. They were still quite low, but they had uh, almost doubled. They went from like three or less than three percent obesity rate to almost, I think it's in the close to six now, uh, from from in that span. Japan is still really low, even though they've increased a little bit, but uh, but I think there was a there's definitely been a huge influence in uh, Western food in in South Korea. Um, what's funny about South Korea too is like you go there, it's the fried chicken capital of the world. It's seriously there's so many fried chicken places. And they love this uh, concept. It's called uh, uh, it's called chimek, which basically means chicken and beer. Mm. And they have all these chicken and beer uh, locations. 
which is uh, you know that's overflowed into Hong Kong because I started seeing the chicken and beer thing? chicken yeah. places and I'm like is this a Korean delicacy I don't remember it being yeah. sort of a thing but it's popping up in various places yeah so the um, the fried chicken and beer thing is very popular they recently started popularizing um, beer and pizza so they call it pimek so p pi- <laughs> okay. so pizza mek mek is is short for mekju which is beer. Uh, so they do this thing where they just like take the first syllable okay. of the two words and they just put it together, and uh, so yeah, chicken and beer is a bit is the most popular. Pizza and beer is starting to become more popular. They also have one of the highest uh, uh, liquor consumption rates in the world. Uh, they they were like I think it was like two two or three years ago I looked they were like number one in the world in liquor consumption yeah, because they have their soju yeah. drink it's so so cheap. And it's, but it's part of the culture. Oh yeah, super part yeah, of the culture. It's, it's yeah. part of yeah. You just can't drink it like water. I mean, it's like the Russians. Yeah, but they also have a very uh, preventative healthcare system, uh, which has almost kind of I think kind of worked against them because they're so quick now to uh, give their um, their clients um, antibiotic shots. Um, like as soon as they feel like they're catching a cold, they go to the they go to see the doctor, and the doctor's right away is like antibiotic. Mm-hmm. And so now like. Koreans have like such a great preventive care system, but now it's so preventative that they're just like overdosing on antibiotics. Yeah. They're getting sick super easy. They call they have a, a saying called "shukchi uh, chi," which basically means like like easy easy to get cold, mm-hmm. and so they'll get sick like three four times a year, um, wow. like quite quite often. So I think this whole um, I think they're trying to get away from it, but um, I find it's. Uh, it's quite bad in the opposite direction yeah it's interesting to see that it's interesting to notice that because i think i kind of look at um places that are developing um and sort of my connection with that is because i was born in burma so um it's now opened up into Mm -hmm. sort of the rest of the world for investments and trade um and so going back there i've noticed um you know, I went back there actually about 20 years ago, and then I've gone back a couple of times in the last two years. Okay. I've noticed that even the last two years, um, there's been a lot of um, fast food. Um, and people there now are very, very slim, because they walk everywhere, they eat a traditional sort of Burmese diet. Yeah. And then, you know, just seeing sort of these places open up, and people are going there because right now they're actually expensive. They're considered like gourmet. The fast food places. Yeah, the fast food places. So they're they're considered gourmet. So not everyone's affording to be able to eat it, which in some ways I think it's probably a good thing. But then over time, as it becomes more available, more popular, and because there's that connection with the West, you know, there's that sort of status. I think I want to be more American. Yeah. Yeah. So. I think people are starting to get away from that, right? They see America now, and they're just kind of like, I don't want to. I don't want to be like that anymore. Getting a little bit too yeah, extreme on I the fat now. side, yeah. Yeah, I think. I think what's it? What's it like in uh, Hong Kong now? Is it? Is, are people very health conscious in Hong Kong? Or actually, it's interesting because um, I think there is sort of a culture of people that are becoming much more aware of their health. Um, maybe because there's that underlying tradition in Chinese medicine where the idea is about supporting vitality and and um, 
you know, some of my patients used to joke and said, I come to see you for the drugs, but then mm. I go to see the TCM to get better. <laughs> so I was like, what? Yeah. <laughs> but there's, there's an underlying understanding um, about longevity. And so the concept of, you know, eating certain foods and what foods are mm. important, because a lot of the TCMs, traditional Chinese medicine practitioners, um, will advise on eliminating certain foods from the diet. So it's kind right. of like an elimination diet. I think the the Chinese, though, though there's not, a, I mean, a lot of Westerners would argue that there's just not a lot of, like, science behind, like, what the Chinese do, but the Chinese have been practicing what they do for for so long and and though people would argue against like anecdotal evidence i mean i mean what is what is a case study but like a, a large you know uh, yeah. amount of anecdotal anecdotal situations right but they just like they they isolate the variables as much as possible but, but i find that i mean there's so many things that work in chinese medicine that i mean there's so much further ahead i think than than what westerners are doing i think part of it to the Westerners' uh, hindrance is the maybe the over reliance on absolute like truth or absolute fact on on certain things before experimenting. Yeah, well, I think partly that came from the fact that you know we just started developing a lot of um, therapeutics like drugs, uh, medication, for example, that do have serious side effects. So the idea that we have to look at these things very carefully came about and so the level of evidence for these types of treatments because they're potentially very toxic mm. um, have to be very high so that's why the idea that everything else um, has to fall under that category is a little bit of a blanket statement so when you say well there's evidence from 3,000 years ago um, yeah because they're actually recorded in Chinese texts it's just not on PubMed for you to yeah. research and read um, and it is in Chinese language, so people aren't getting access yeah, to that's, it. Yeah, that's a funny thing. Like People would just be like, oh, I can't find it on, let's say, PubMed or exam.com. And it's like, well, there's, it's probably in text that you just can't read. Yeah. You know, like there's a lot like yeah. there's a lot of things with regards to exercise and nutrition. or not, I don't know about nutrition, but definitely about exercise uh, that or physical health that comes from Germany. Mm. And they have a ton of material. The issue for someone like me who can't read German is that I have to wait for it to get translated by somebody, um, and then also two is like, well, maybe it'll never get translated, and there's always going to be like information from like super high level uh, performers or practitioners or whatnot that are not, it's not in, known to the public, or even known to other high level practitioners from the West. Um, and then sometimes there's also situations like in, let's say, the Olympics, like if there's an like, Olympic coach from China that has like the most amazing methodology that gets him the gold every year, why would he share it to anybody, really, you know? <laughs> yeah. um, especially the competition in, in that regards. So, yeah, I think people need to be more open to, yeah, to other... It's, and it's also about understanding what level of evidence is required for what specific therapies you're, you're trying to sort of... Um, advise or, or recommend because I, I always use a very simple principle I look at it to see what the safety is mm-hmm. um, and I look at what the efficacy is um, and is it simple um, to do um, and is it actually something which is common sense mm. because if the evidence for all of those ticks all those four boxes and it's pretty safe then why not give it a go yeah. um, and 
apart from that, um, a lot of the modern science research is actually discovering that a lot of the truths or a lot of the practices in very traditional um, diets and, and medicine has a physiological basis and foundation. We're just finding and discovering those pathways now. So just because there's no evidence doesn't mean that it doesn't work. It's just that nobody's done the research. Yeah. So we have to sort of be quite specific about what we mean by no evidence, you know, because it could confuse people. Well, even when there is uh, case studies or evidence, or you know, evidence, uh, some of it is not even interpreted correctly. Some of it's yeah. um, all the they'll come to a conclusion. Uh, based off of unrealistic uh, situations, mm -hmm. so I think there was one uh, one study that was done on, on on bacteria where they basically isolated like one bacteria and then basically and they kind of like just dumped a bunch of artificial sweeteners on it. It's like you would have to you would have to consume like two hundred times the the normal recommended amount of of this uh, uh, vitamin, and I mean if you consume that much of anything, it'll kill you. Mm. So yeah, it's, it's not it's valid. Weird. Yeah, it's not yeah, valid. It's not like valid. it's just like I was like, oh, you shouldn't, yeah. uh, you shouldn't have artificial sweeteners because they just dumped two hundred times yeah. the normal serving and it, yep. it died. Well, of course it died. Yeah, like of you, course. Because yeah. it's, it's any type of anything, even good or bad, if you give it, to, if, if you give too much, it's going to be poison. Yeah. So, and that's the thing about this obsession, and it became, it becomes. You know, and, and the whole thing about research is that if you look at a lot of the research too, well, who are they funded by? Yeah, definitely yeah. something. But even that, you know, like saying just like it doesn't necessarily like just uh, like you can't just dismiss the results of the study because of who it's funded by. But at least that is a component that you should yeah. look at and see yeah. if maybe some of the information was skewed a little bit with regards to who funded it. There was uh, the big problem with the uh, the Harvard scientist that d had that uh, study on sugar. Yeah. Right, that was like mm -hmm. debunked because they like yeah. they just <laughs> yeah messed up all the information. Yeah, you have to be very careful mm. in interpreting the data, and you got to understand that there are components, perhaps, of incentives behind the results. Mm. And um, I think that's why you know even though we say oh yeah this is gold standard or this is what you should look at, I would always look at it with a grain of salt, and say. Does, is this relevant? Does it apply to the type of people that I'm trying to use it on? Or Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, like, when it comes to, let's say, something as serious like this cancer, right, there's a lot of people in Western medicine that would just like to have a set protocol that would, like, force you to do, uh, like, chemotherapy and, like, all the other um, things. And then when somebody, I always hear, like, these stories of, like, someone tried maybe an alternative means to uh, treat their cancer and then they, I don't know, they happen to eventually die. Mm. But it's it's weird that people's perception is that like, oh, he died because he did this alternative, me the alternative medicine. But they don't. It's like, well, even if he did chemo, he did he would have died. You know, anyways. It's like mm. would. It seems like they're they're almost blind to, if they would have just done chemo and done the Western style of of treating the mm. the issue that, whether they lived or died, you know it. it they almost dismiss it as, mm. it's like, oh, he was just going to die anyways. But if they did alternative medicine then and they died, they'd be like, well, he should have done the, the chemo. Yeah. Um, is there, do you, do you find a lot of people doing more alternative um, procedures with regards to something like cancer? I think people are lost when it 
comes to having a diagnosis of cancer. It's often they're very afraid, they're very fearful, um, and you know there there are very specific set of criterias and procedures um, that doctors go through mm. to to provide this medication. Um, but yeah, at the same time, um, there's often not a lot of talk about um, things like nutrition, um, things like stress management, um, and even movement to some extent. And there are so many studies coming out now that say that that part is just as important mm. because it improves the quality, the tolerance to the actual therapies, which are often quite toxic. Yeah, and there was a, I mean, there was a, a Tim Ferriss podcast where he he actually, or I don't even know if it was a podcast, maybe it was just a blog post, but he talked to a bunch of uh, um, nutritionists and a bunch of people from different uh, specialties about what would they do if they found out that they had. Um, cancer and a lot of there was like some commonalities with regard and one of them was always like they had one component was definitely by far like nutrition and um, quite a few of them would just go full-on keto or um, definitely take out all like products sugary products because it the research tends to lean towards that sugar feeds the the, the cancer right and um, and it seems like a lot of them too like wouldn't I'm not saying that you should not not do chemo, but it seems like there's actually a big movement moving away from um, that kind of treatment. It seems to be quite harsh on that because it kills both the good, good and, and the bad. Yeah. So it almost seems like it's working against you in that regard, right? Well, I think you we have to understand that there are potential toxicities when we give medication, um, and you know whether it's chemotherapy or whether it's an antibiotic or whether it's an acid suppressant drug, you know, the fine print tells us that there are all these side effects, but we don't know, or we, you know, conventional medicine doesn't really address the area of how do we support that, right. how do we minimize it, and so people are seeking what we call alternative, but alternative, what does that mean? That means sort of something instead of convention, because that's sort of you know what it seems to imply mm. but I kind of like to use the term complementary because complementary with the best evidence suggests that you're not excluding conventional chemo treatment but you're doing that in conjunction with with what is the best evidence for things like diet nutrition supplementation mm. um, and more and more research for example using intravenous vitamin C actually has shown to improve quality of life in patients who are receiving chemotherapy mm. so it's about looking at the evidence for that and not disregarding it and saying that's alternative it's not that it's not a replacement for conventional treatment but it can be done in conjunction with it right so I think we have to start to understand what we mean before we use these terms and um, coming from a science background I like definitions I like to yeah. things to be um, transparent and that's what I would um, sort of try to sort of really segregate and try to differentiate actually what people are meaning by alternative. Yeah. You know, do you mean instead of or do you mean in conjunction with or what what do you really mean? Yeah, I think you know? yeah, even though I mean even the word right alternative kinda has a negative kind of feeling towards it. Like people just Yeah, think of alternative as something I mean, I don't know if it's it's definitely getting better. I mean, I, maybe it's just being here in Bali because there's just so many people doing alternative, mm-hmm. 
medicine or procedures or protocols or experience I mean with things that I've never you know not never really had access to at all I mean we think about like the ozone treatment that people are doing um, was it has there been anything interesting that you've tried recently that you wouldn't that people normally wouldn't do or don't really relatively have access to um, like while here in Bali yeah I guess in terms of um, watsu um, but you know that's sort of more of gentle type of treatment. Um, what is that again? So it's like shiatsu. So it's a Japanese form of massage. It's okay. very, very gentle. Mm-hmm. Um, and it has been shown to improve the parasympathetic nervous system. So it's basically this form of shiatsu, but done in a pool um, okay. in water with a therapist. And it's like getting a baptism. Um, yeah, so it's not so much a Duncan or yeah, come up, but yeah. uh, it's about 75 minutes. Okay. And the therapist actually helps you. So your full body's your in body. the water? Yeah, full okay. body's in the water. You're floating. You've got some things to help you float. Like if oh. you're like myself, who's like a little bit dense in their body, it's sort of like a floaty. And so the therapist will, and you try and just let go. Yeah. So let go, and the therapist will move your body around into different positions. And um, the idea is that when I first experienced shiatsu, um, it actually made me feel very, very calm. I just immediately felt that I was less sympathetic, I was much calmer, and it actually helped me become, tap into my creative problem-solving side. Okay. So I was curious about trying this because, you know, I resonated really well with shiatsu, so I thought, what about in water? You know, what would that be like? And it was a very similar... um, feeling or, or, or um, sensation that I had because I was starting to get ideas about how to solve different problems in my life that just yeah. kind of came up and it was a journey for me. It was actually, you know, it was very, very emotional but also very personal. Um, there were different lessons that I learned about myself through that process. So I think um, they, they're not necessarily new. I think there are different modalities um, that help bring people to that space. You know, for example, like um, sound therapy. Yeah, I was um, going to ask if you've done yeah. sound or light therapy. Yeah, actually I did that all here this month that I was here yeah. in Bali was one of the reasons why I came. Yeah, I think experience that's a that. really kind of cool part about about coming to Bali with regards to, and this is, I think this kind of all falls into um, the, like the industry that we're in with regards to wellness is uh, for me particularly being here in Bali is a wellness tourism and uh, I think there's a lot of ability to experiment with a lot of different uh, protocols and procedures and and such in Bali that's not wouldn't necessarily be readily available in other areas yeah. uh, I haven't tried the sound and the light therapy but I've, I'm definitely interested in, in getting on that have you tried the sensory deprivation tank the yes. float tanks yeah, yeah so have. when you talked about the floating part of the, the mm. shiatsu massage like I think I, I did it for the first time. I spent like 90 minutes in there and it was, man, like after 60 minutes, I was just, ex- I was felt like was exhausted. I was exhausted just, just laying there and mentally fatigued, I guess. Um, what was going through your mind? Was there anything? I don't know. I was just like, why am I, like, this is so long. This is why am I just in here for so long? Um, I don't know. I was just kind of like, my mind was empty for the most part. I tried to sleep, but I, I think maybe I came in and out. Yeah. But I didn't really have, uh, maybe I need a few more sessions, but I didn't really have like no. a revelation or, no. or uh, Yeah, and, I, and like I have that. to admit that when I first went into that type of tank, that was the question I was asking. It's like, why did I 
decide to come here. Yeah, what is this, what's going on? Like, I'm just like floating here. And just <laughs> yeah. What am I supposed to feel? And all these things and thoughts were going through my head. And I almost felt like, you know, the first session, I really disliked it. Mm. And I said I would never go back again. But um, it was after a little while that I did a bit more work in terms of breathing. Okay. So it's like doing breath work. And that's when I started to... Um, have a sense of connection with myself and I think when we're in wellness um, you know I was you know a few years, many many years back I was more focused on the physical aspect of wellness yeah. I didn't actually sort of understand the connection between wellness in my mind so it wasn't just mental wellness so it mm. wasn't just that oh you know I don't want anxiety depression or um, sort of these things but it was more about you know my mental state overall you know the stress that I carry every day you know how do I understand and how do I deal with those things because um, and, and I started looking into how to bring that um, consciousness um, of these emotions that mm. I would have but I would ignore because we're all kind of unconscious or subconscious in many ways when we're like living our day-to-day -day, yeah. um, and we're reacting to things you know just like um, our limbic system goes it's into overdrive. fire all yeah. the time, yeah. And you're on the phone all the time, you're getting emails, you're getting questions all the time. So, um, and I would find myself just having this um, sense of the overwhelm mm. and burnout. And so my, my, my journey was to try to understand a bit more about what if I just didn't do anything. Mm. But I find that too, like with regards to Definitely there's a higher focus on the mental aspect of health, I think, in, in Bali compared to other places. I do also find that there's issues with regards to fitness and how people uh, approach it. You know, like, sure, people think of the physical aspect of fitness, but it, it tends, most of the industry is either you you focus on the aesthetics, right, how you look and, and you know, how it's smaller clothes you fit into um, or it's just a kind of a fatigue seeking uh, nature right it's not really figuring out what it is your body needs it's it's just like just put yourself in a situation where you're just like destroying your body and see if you can survive um, and, and one of the one of my members uh, here now um, she's uh, net her name's Nettie she's uh, like a mobility specialist and so essentially she she Pretty much every day she starts off by essentially doing like a self-exploration of her body and just figuring out where she is like extra maybe she's like extra tight in a certain area like her hips and then so then she'll like figure out what is it that her body needs before actually figuring out like what is she going to be training for that day mm. and uh, and i think there's a few mobility guys that have been coming through and really when it comes to like longevity um, we want to think about her joints is like one of the biggest things and can you maintain like full range of movement through the rest of your life uh and so there's a yeah there's a ten, i mean it's not it's not sexy that's no. that's for sure yeah, like and you're, you're gonna right. spend like half an hour just like i'm just gonna work on my hip mobility you know it's not as sexy as doing like 500 burpees and yeah. and whatnot but uh and it's not instagrammable because not it's not, not so much yeah not so much but some yeah. of the stuff they're doing is quite intense and it's mm. almost unbelievable uh, I think, but it all kind of falls around this idea of like, how do you, how do you redefine like what is normal functionality of the body? Mm. Uh, well, if you look at how, you know, humans have evolved from a baby, um, you know, into midlife, 
I mean, if you look at the baby, they do a perfect squat. Yeah, and super flexible yeah. and uh, relative yeah. to, and you see little kids, right? Little kids are generally relative to their size are quite strong. Yeah. Um, we tend to get tighter, less, less flexible. Uh, sure, absolute, like an absolute way, like we're stronger, mm -hmm. but relative to the size that we are, like not really. Mm -hmm. um, we had a kid in here, she was like eight, nine years old, and she was like, doing crazy things like i just couldn't believe like she's like doing high level like advanced movements like in calisthenics and or um even like we have an 85 year old who comes in once a week and he's doing mobility exercises that a lot of people in their 20s and 30s can't do mm. um and it, i think it's just like having a different focus on the training yeah i agree and i think this is the part when you say you're quite right that it's not sexy um, because they're really basic things mm. um, and people sort of get bored or they don't get motivated to continue with those things and this is the sort of struggle that I have with all the basic things that I try and get my patients to do but I think people come here and they see that it's available right. and it brings their attention and awareness to it in their classes and their regular there's, their coaches there's definitely a tipping point coming like there's something coming with regards to like how much people are like destroying their bodies through most avenues of fitness you know even like bodybuilding right like how many people are are dying at a younger age because of how massive they get and how much um how much uh how many problems they have with regards to their organ function and then also like in your in your in, you know uh, fatigue seeking nature with regards to a lot of these um gyms is like you know you have shoulder problems you have hip problems and yep. And, uh, and, and all these uh, just general health issues. Mm -hmm. So, especially with the world, like, aging population, too, it makes a lot of sense. If someone wants to get into it, like, go into um, personal training for the elderly. Like, mm -hmm. I think that's a massively yeah, growing industry. it's huge. Because, um, I mean, I, for example, like, I, I remember watching my grandmother, who lived till 90, um, and up until the age of 80, she was able to you know, sit on a very low squat chair and mm. just do her little vegetable sort of preparation before cooking yeah. her food and she was mobile, she was very independent. I walk through the park in Hong Kong and I see these old people doing their Tai Chi and they're yeah. in a community and I kind of then think back to when I was in Australia, you know, medical school and I wasn't seeing that. So I think there's definitely because the world is getting closer and closer, there's a lot more of these types of movements and traditions that are really being exchanged mm. so I do see that people are picking up on that and so I think people also are being aware more aware that they it's it's not just the fancy stuff you know it's the same with um, what I do in anti-aging it's it's not just the fancy tools but you've also got to work on the foundation thing so for me it's a team of people around me my health coaches and my nurse and therapists who, who are there to actually um, hold people's hand um, and just to motivate and encourage them for the long term yeah hmm. do you ever do you ever get anybody like if you gave them like a very simple basic thing that they need to work on like maybe they uh, get like angry or even get confused as to what are they what exactly like they're almost expecting something like amazing that they just <laughs> yeah. they're like really all I have to do is sleep this is 
Yeah. I, I can't believe I had to come all the way here just to get some <laughs> advice to sleep more. <laughs> to right? pay me all this money yeah. to just tell them to sleep more. Um, I guess I don't just tell them what they need to do. I actually educate them mm. because I try and understand where they're coming from. We have a very comprehensive questionnaire. We do sort of, um, and I and I look at what is the connection between all these symptoms. So um, and I can and I often offer them the the alternate uh, the the different types of modalities. I can say, well, I could give you this pill. Yeah. And yeah, you would sleep, but the thing is, you're not going to get deep sleep, which is what you really need to heal your body. Right. So you know, you choose what yeah. you want. So I think yeah, that's I mean that's definitely a good thing. I like how you answered that. You know, like there's so many people that would just. Um, you're actually trying to figure out like what's going on with these people and, and educating them, which I think is a big, big part of the process. You know, not just saying, "All right, I'm going to fix you," and then you fix them, and you're like, "All right, good." Like, I mean, because what ends up happening with a lot of people, especially from the physical component, is that like even if you were to fix them, it's like you can expect them back in two weeks because they're gonna, you know, they're gonna hurt well, themselves again, yeah. or they just don't even know like what they did. Yeah. Um, but this is also quite interesting. It reminds me of when you're saying you give them uh, both options, right? Whether they can actually do something to fix the the real underlying issue, or just take a pill and, and feel better. <laughs> and there was like a like a photo or a meme or something where like one person was like offered he can either eat some liver mm -hmm. to get a bunch of like all these nutrients and get all this stuff that they wanted, yeah. or they just take like. I don't know. Fifteen like different create, capsules. Yeah, fifteen different capsules of pills or whatever. Or whatever. Yeah. Just just take these pills and you'll feel good. And it's like, well I'll just take the pills. Yeah. So how do you do you find any difficulty with people who they will understand that they have a problem? They understand that they would get certain benefits from doing it um, more maybe more holistically mm -hmm. but still decide to go with the pills? Like Yeah, yeah, sure. And that's, you know, that's part of their journey. Um, and I don't see myself as doing anything for them. Mm. Ultimately, any type of change that someone makes that's sustainable for long term has to come from themselves. Mm. So I can't really force them to change. I can just educate them. Provide them with provide the them options. With the options yeah. So that perhaps at some stage down the line, they're ready to make that decision. Yeah. Um, and I think that's really part of... Um, patient-centered care mm. it's about understanding empowering your patients empowering the people so that they have the right information and if they're ready to make that change then have the right tools and the right support system for them to go and make that yeah. change and be successful yeah timing is such a, a huge component um, unfortunately uh, some people maybe they wait too late um, maybe they so we always think of like for the physical component like sometimes it takes some kind of trauma experience like they hurt their shoulder and then they're like wow i gotta really focus on my shoulders uh ideally you don't get to a point where you you wake up one day with a you know herniated disc in your back or something that's like really debilitating before you're like man now i gotta focus on my health um, but i do think it's kind of there's there's that one part where people is they do end up realizing after some very hard experience that they need to change their focus. Yeah. But then there's also people who would experience a very hard situation and then basically just give up, right? And they'll just be like, oh, well, I'm already, mm -hmm. you know, I've already been smoking for 20 years, so what does it matter if I stop now? Mm -hmm. um, is, is there, are there any like psychological 
aspects of, of what you do, like with regards yeah. to helping people kind of deal with these issues? Yeah, there's a, there's a huge, um, I mean, eventually everything comes down to that. It's the mindset and where that mental state is. Because if someone believes that they are going to recover, that they have the ability to feel better, mm. um, then they are going to be more motivated, for sure. But if someone is in a bad place where they feel that um, health and wellness um, is, is something that they don't deserve, then they're not going to make those changes because they actually don't feel that they deserve to be in a better place. Mm. So um, part of the process for me is also to understand um, what pressures they have in their life, how do they see themselves. So it's not a really formal test that I do, but through the conversation, I'm listening to them and trying to understand where their mindset is and where they come so from. So the more emotional intelligence yeah, component of... Yeah, exactly, totally. Mm. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's about assessing where they're at because mm. if they have a very high... Um, if they're very de very well developed, they've done a lot of work on themselves to explore that avenue. They get it, they understand, and mm. they and they are on the same page. But sometimes they're not, and they're not even aware that they're not mm. in that space. So then it's about bringing that attention and focus without being threatening and challenging. Because sometimes um, we can put symptoms down into something that's all just in your head. So, you know, psychosomatic. Go and see a psychiatrist. Get an antidepressant. Sure. You know, and most people actually don't need that, but they just need a little bit of education, a bit of um, positive psychology, um, and I use that a lot um, in my conversations with my patients. You know, even like sometimes they'll come back and say, "Look, you know, of the, all the things that you told me to do, I only managed to do that," and they just feel very self-defeated. And I say, "Wow, yeah. that's great! Yeah. You know, you actually did one thing, yeah. and how do you feel about that?" And just focus on the positives mm -hmm. of that. So. I, I don't do formal psychotherapy or those things and I refer out to people who really need it um, and I have a very good colleague who's an integrative psychiatrist. Okay. So she's someone that I hope you'll be, really cool. be able to talk yeah. to yeah. Um, because she's Bring got a lot of Bali. interesting yeah, um, talks about that. So, you know, um, there are different levels and mm -hmm. my job is to assess how severe um, people's emotional states are and then refer them to the right people um, and just... Um, bring awareness and attention to that. Yeah, no, that's real cool. Yeah, definitely the. Uh, I mean, we see it with uh, in, in a lot of athletes as well, right? I mean, sports psychology is a huge, yeah. uh, huge field, mm -hmm. and there's just so many. Um, yeah, the mindset thing is is, is massive. Mm. Uh, do you ever? And I find there's like another component uh, that I was like wanted to ask about with regards to people in this day and age where there's just so much information available on the internet right do you ever have people that would come in too to be like oh i read this on on um what's the big web webmd or something like yeah, that WebMD. yeah like i read this on webmd i yeah, must yeah. i must have this problem with me like or yep. they'll uh they'll almost not even like listen to to what your your suggestions might be but i, I do like that you that you're focused on the the educational component, right? And providing people with options, so giving them the actual, mm. like, if you give them, you know, choices A, B, and C, and C happens to be the worst decision, but you gave them the choice and they chose it, then you kind of have to own it to the to a certain extent. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah. uh, but I like definitely like that approach significantly more than almost forcing decisions on people. 
Yeah, it's it's kind of always been my approach because um, it's about empowering people. And I think as a doctor, I mean the real ancient definition of a doctor is a teacher. Mm. We're teach we're there to teach people about their bodies, about their health and wellness. And yeah, sure, we have all these tools, you know, drugs, medication, you know, whatever it is um, that we use. But there are tools, and people ultimately still have to take responsibility for their decision. Mm. You know, whether I agree or not, you know, on a personal level, it's it's not about me. It's about that person. And um, going back to what you say, people read all sorts of stuff on the internet, and they get analysis paralysis, and they're coming even more confused. And so I usually will draw their attention back to themselves and their symptoms mm. and why they came in and what triggered it and what's most likely to be the issue there and then get them to actually start with that first step first because the body is connected. Yeah. If you actually make a change that's positive, that's supporting the system, um, then it will shift other parts mm. of the body. And um, classic example is um, someone comes in with a skin problem and I do something with their diet and gut and their joint pains get better. Um, so, you know, they may diagnose themselves with like, fibromyalgia, for example, when they look on yeah. WebMD, but it's actually not really as severe as that because, you know, they're not trained to assess the level of severity. Right. You know, we are as clinicians and so it's our job to give them an idea of, you know, where they sit you know, in the, I call it the traffic light system. Are you green? Are you yellow? Are you red? Because yeah. if you're red, you're in serious condition, you need to do something about it now. Yeah. So it's about um, measuring their symptoms and telling them, well, actually, a lot of people feel that way as well, and most people have these experiences. It's actually yeah. not that bad. It just takes a bit of time, you know, or this is very serious, um, you know, this is very high. We need to do something about it now. Mm. You have to have further investigation. So it's kind of triage as well. So that um, we're not putting fear into people to get them to take action. Right. You know, you're not ex over-exaggerating their symptoms or the severity of it and what it means to get them to do something because, you know, I don't really feel that this fear mindset um, is something that is going to help people because when we're in fear, we're only looking at the negatives. Mm. We're much more, because our brains are wired that way to just focus on the negatives. What what pain I'm in, what can't I do, what can't I achieve. Whereas if we actually just give the right information mm. and it helps to sort of balance their expectations and what they need to do, they're also in a much better space to receive information yeah, <laughs> that I'm trying to no, teach true, them. True. Yeah. yeah, I think, um, yeah, I mean, definitely the focus on health is increasing a lot um, with regards to like the uh, health like the wellness uh, tourism industry, it's, I mean, it's one of the, f I mean, I think it is the fastest growing uh, sector of, of tourism. And uh, and that's I mean, kind of one of the big reasons why we kind of set up shop here in Bali. And you can see all the other uh, alternative medicine, uh, all the scientists, all the mm -hmm. practical, uh, like, uh, practitioners, practitioners yeah. and, and, and whatnot. Um, but I think, yeah, it's a very cool, interesting scene to, to be here in Bali and, and meet someone like yourself. Yeah. and. Uh, it will be definitely cool to have more discussions, and I definitely uh, really appreciate like the way that you think about how to deal with like people's health as opposed to just putting a bandaid on the situation. Uh, it's it's very uh, it's very hard to find 
like in the, in the, in, the, in, in, in anything health related, right? Whether it be yeah. fitness or, and that's that's a big thing that we focus on, not just obviously for this podcast of the idea of uh, how can we uh, have optimal uh, health, you know, beyond just surviving life, but yeah. how can we thrive to become the best version of ourselves? Mm-hmm. And uh, and then that's I mean for us we focus you know obviously more on the the physical component, but mm-hmm. we're trying to incorporate more of the 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 recovery protocols um trying to get more educational um events right happening at the gym as well i think that's a very interesting part of of what we do that's not at most gyms right so most gyms are just gym and most gyms are just like okay you either um survive this 60 minute workout (laughs) um or you you know work on bigger biceps and like that's it uh so yeah, yeah, definitely. It's it's been an interesting process for to get people to actually understand like the movement component of their body and yeah. trying to connect their their brain, their yeah. CNS, using their CNS to actually engage their muscles or even teaching someone how to use their their quads. Yeah. Because you, it's crazy. Because like you get some people, um, and it tends to be be people who are super flexible, mm. but cannot even uh, engage their uh, their thighs mm. properly because they actually have no. Well, one, they, they're really yeah. limited in, in how much muscle they have, but yeah. also, two, they just, like, they've never squeezed their quads before <laughs> or something like that. Like, it's, it's very... Problem there, yeah. but, um, yeah. Or even, even scapula development, like, mm. that's, that's a big... And you actually find that there's a huge disconnect with so-called fitness professionals as well. Like, they... Mm. Oh, this is one thing I wanted to ask with regards to other... Maybe other people who are into anti-aging or into uh, other health fields but this idea of competency right like there are some people that have uh, maybe they look on webmd but maybe a little bit higher than that do you ever find that there's other like professionals in the field that maybe don't have as much understanding of the overall picture of understanding of the material than what they kind of give out you know because like i do find in maybe it's more prevalent just in the fitness industry because the the barrier to entry is so low right like you could be like 20 years old you can get a personal training certification and then boom you feel like you know everything Mm. science and and what you do there's obviously a much more in-depth process so it's probably not as as prevalent but yeah it's less prevalent because we have so many strict criteria in medical school and that's quite rigorous and the you know kind of people that end up going into it coming out of it you know we're very very meticulous mm. because we are using dangerous tools you know they're prescription drugs you know they have side effects so we have to be meticulous um, and I think so we have to make sure that we have that level of um, standard and we are governed externally by you know a medical body you know the medical license registration system maybe maybe so. it's more than relevant to so we were saying before how like you don't really you don't have a very specific focus on the psychological aspect of what your patients might need and you would refer them out to a specialist yep. maybe it's more with regards to like general practitioners that go beyond the scope of what they their knowledge is and recommend things that so, like, um, a general practitioner has no background in, inform- in nutrition, start giving a lot of nutritional advice on what people should yeah. do. You know, like, I find that that's quite more common than it should be. Mm. Uh, I think that there's definitely some situations where um, 
like someone who is like it's like someone who specializes in like ear, nose, and throat start giving advice on heart health. Like it, mm-hmm. you know, it's just sometimes there's like maybe there's certain things that they shouldn't be just because they're a doctor. Mm-hmm. But they're sometimes they're so specific in one area that they maybe they shouldn't be. They should know where their limitations are with yeah. regards to their field. I actually find, I don't know, maybe it's a different set of people, but I do find, I actually find that the more sub, the more specialized you are, the more you actually stay within your realm. But when it comes to nutrition, however, yeah. the problem is that doctors are not taught nutrition. So mm. we only... It's like, was like one, one course hour. yeah some super <laughs> some people might get a day yeah. <laughs> but um we're we're really not given um, much information on that so a lot of the information that is given is quite generic mm. and very non-specific so but nutrition itself is quite specific to the person where they're at and what their metabolism is but because there's not enough information there we're kind of just giving really what is generic out there mm. so that can be perceived as um, for the patient maybe it's it's inappropriate but because it is accepted as standard of care um, it's it's kind of what 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 is what the, that's the advice that's given so it, it's because they don't know mm. um, and they haven't necessarily done the further training or they haven't sort of felt that they need to because anything that you do after medical school or your specialty training is kind of not essential um, because all that training is really geared towards drug prescription. Um, it's only now, you know, I have to say yeah. this and, and, you know, how much time did we spend on, okay, what is exercise prescription? Right. You know, what is, um, you know, sleep prescription? Mm. Like, this is very new and um, the American Board of Lifestyle Medicine was only recently established to address these issues mm. that as doctors apart from drug prescriptions we should be able to prescribe lifestyle prescriptions yeah because most patients do come to listen to their doctor for some reason you know you're we're still seen in high esteem in Asia yeah and so it's more powerful what I say to the patient if I say what well, well you need to have eight hours of good quality deep sleep they'll actually do it because they still feel that you know the doctor knows best do you do you think then there's like some maybe some of the problem is that because there's certain areas with regards to like like let's say lifestyle and sleep that there is it's difficult for a doctor to have a specialist that they can refer patients to yeah because there isn't really there isn't one person who says oh yeah i you know look after this person's you know sleep and i make them i keep them accountable because actually to do that you kind of need health coaches Mm. because the doctor's time is just not effective in monitoring and policing that i say police but actually should really be supported (laughs) but what i mean is um you know, it's like when you hire a personal trainer. You go there three times, twice a week, and you talk about your training. They see you. They they check in with you. The same with a health coach. You yeah. know, you have specific goals that you want to meet. Whether it's you know, for example, one of my nurses um, the other day said, "I want to be able to do five thousand steps per day." And so, oh, great. Okay, so I actually got the other health coach in the practice to say, now you're going to be responsible for coaching her mm. and making sure that she's doing her 5,000 steps. And now we have these wearables, we have Apple Watches, we have technology that do yeah. these simple things. I mean, I just feel that there is no excuse not to write it as a prescription and get people to slowly 
move more. And that's why as a doctor, I need help from um, health coaches yeah. because they're working together with me. They understand the goals of my patient and the patient almost like has a contract with a health coach right. and they know they're going to check in once a week and they know they're going to see on um, the graph. We, ha we have a health coach app. Yeah. So the patients cool. download it. Yeah. They connect it to their device and we see what they do. Yeah. I definitely think though that there's definitely a disconnect between like what um, scientists are doing with regards to like health and then sometimes like let's say if they don't necessarily know like there's they would just say all right you need to exercise three days a week and it's like well what, what does that mean like, yeah. like for me it's like if you just mean exercise well there's just so many things you could be yeah. doing and actually some 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 forms of exercise could be detrimental to what you actually want to accomplish mm. so it's it's um but i definitely definitely think like building a network of practitioners that can um, help refer patients and work together to yeah. um to help optimize the situation because I mean there is it's, it's almost I mean it's impossible for one person to know enough about everything to, to provide the most uh, yeah. perfect program but I think because we're still in such a like a exploratory like phase of all these different areas that there needs to be a lot more communication between like fitness high-level fitness experts you know scientists and anti-aging and, mm. and just like practitioners and just all these different fields that yep, come together sure. and actually talk yeah. which actually um and i hope you can come for um in october 12th which would be um a, we're going to hold a wellness conference which ideally we get a lot of people from different backgrounds mm. and not just we'll have a health uh, like lifestyle coach and yeah. and someone talking about essential nutrition and and hopefully yourself talking about uh anti-aging and regenerative medicine and um maybe we get somebody to come in and talk about uh the psychological aspect of, of Yep. and sleep and just have everybody come in and just I think that'd be really yeah. quite cool and quite interesting yeah. um, so uh, where can uh, where can everybody find you on social media yeah and so you can find me on social media um, Instagram at Doc Lorena or you can find me on Facebook at Dr. Lorena okay or you can find me on my website at www.drlarena.com and okay. it's l-a-u-r-e-n-a <laughs> okay and and all, and all that we'll go ahead and post into the the comment section below the the podcast um this was awesome yeah and Thank i know you. you're um yeah, you're leaving <laughs> tomorrow back to hong kong but yeah. you'll be back soon and i'm sure we'll have some more talks in the future yeah. Look forward to it. Thank okay. you so much. Awesome. Ian. Well, uh, thank you for tuning in uh, on another episode of uh, Nirvana Strength Practitioners Panel, and uh, see you next time. Bye. Bye.